What's up, Joe? What's up, everybody? Today on Sports 360, we are privileged to have with us Brendan Schwab. Brendan is the executive director of the World Players Association, a labor organization representing over 85,000 players through more than 100 player associations in over 60 countries. Brendan joins us to talk about the global impact on sports and society of the coronavirus outbreak and the efforts being undertaken by the WPA to protect the health and well-being of athletes and others. Brendan also will discuss the recent decision by the IOC to postpone the 2020 Olympic Games and what this may mean not only for the future of the Olympiad, but also for the global governance of sports. It's a conversation you won't want to miss, and we have it for you right here on Sports 360. Joining me today on Sports 360 is Brendan Schwab. Brendan is the executive director of the World Players Association, and he joins us today to talk about the work of his organization generally and to discuss the issues that the WPA is actively confronting in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak. Brendan, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you, Brendan, taking some time to be with us today, knowing that this is a busy time for you and for the WPA and for many of us as we just try to adjust to what is an unprecedented time uh, around the world as we all battle with this coronavirus outbreak. Um, And before talking about, you know, some of the things I'd like to cover with you today, um, how are you? How are you and your family? I mean, you work and live in, in Nyon, Switzerland. How, how are things uh, in, in your part of the world? Well, today I read that Switzerland now has the highest rate of infection per head of population in the world, just nudging a little bit ahead of Italy. Of course, we are to the northern Italian border. And so uh, the Switzerland, of course, is a very advanced country with a very strong um, healthcare system, as does, of course, Lombardy and north of, north of Italy. So there's been a very high level of awareness within this country for a number of weeks, if not uh, more than a month, that we were vulnerable to a severe outbreak uh, of the coronavirus. The schools have been shut for some time. Um, the only things which are really open are pharmacies, um, super or grocery stores, uh, etc. So we're in lockdown. We're trying to uh, homeschool the children. We'll have to do this until the 30th of April. But in the main, uh, people are calm and people are living by the rules. Yeah, that's good to hear. And you know, you talk about being on lockdown. You know, I read something earlier this morning, Brendan, that said that a third of the planet is on lockdown. Um, as, you know, the countries are responding to, you know, this virus. And so it it is something that we're so many are dealing with around the globe and and, and obviously a very serious, serious time. Um, uh, Brendan, what I'd like to, to do t- with you today is 
Um, obviously, to talk about how the virus is, has impacted and continues to impact the world of sports and the work that the WPA is doing in that regard. But before jumping into that, um, could you share with us a little bit about the World Players Association, its composition, and the work generally that the organization undertakes? Yeah, sure, Jeff. Well, well, as you as you're well aware, because of the involvement of Major League Baseball Players Association, um, the discussion about setting up the World Players Association started probably eight or nine years ago, when players and athletes were just becoming increasingly frustrated that too many decisions at a global multi-sport level were being made that could vitally impact a player. Um, in areas where the player association movement simply didn't have any influence. And probably the three most significant um, elements of that was the role of the International Olympic Committee um, as the supreme governing body of sport and therefore through the Olympic Charter, being able to develop and promulgate rules that would impose were imposed on athletes and incorporated on a mandatory basis into local contracts. We also had, of course, the World Anti-Doping Agency uh, developing what we regard in many respects as a very draconian and ineffective anti-doping system designed in many ways for individual sports such as track and field and swimming and others. Um, and that being, again, on a mandatory basis, picked up in many of the professional team sports without any process of collective bargaining, of course, the North American sports uh, have been able to bargain their own policies and I might add, including Major League Baseball, have a much better track record in dealing with the problem of doping than we do globally. And the third area was really the, the role of the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Um, it's been described that the Olympic movement, uh, FIFA and others have really been able to develop a global law which can operate um, even to the exclusion of national law but it's not governed in any democratic way. So what we felt was that we needed to build a force that could start to uh, give players an equal say at the global tables where we were being excluded from. And we've started that process now and, uh, and have made a lot of progress. Um, and uh, it's, uh, we're at a delicate time now, of course, as um, the global sport uh, which it really does regard itself as being different, that, that sports somehow is different. The athletes need to be treated differently and that they somehow can operate outside normal legal norms. And what we've now uh, made clear and we're seeing, and we'll probably talk about it shortly, that international human rights norms need to apply to the athletes as people and that if global sport is to be governed in a legitimate way, then it needs to respect the fundamental rights of everyone who's affected by it, including, of course, the athletes. Now, Brendan, that's a that's a that's a pretty daunting undertaking, right? Um, and obviously, it's important. And when you when we talk about the WPA and trying to affect some of these changes that you're talking about, um, one of the things I've always been impressed by is you know, the composition, right? We're talking about the WPA representing, what, 85,000 or more athletes um, in 60 countries, 100 and, uh, or more players associations. And so 
Um, trying to affect these types of changes on a global scale. Um, give us an idea of some of the challenges there, because it would seem to me, you know, we have competing interests even among, uh, or potentially competing interests even among affiliates. Well, I think that there's been a great sense of solidarity on 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 the part of the affiliates, but um, in many ways we're just a continuation of, of of the great struggle which really started in the 1960s, particularly with um, the players' associations in English soccer and in the United States, especially baseball, and they were able to create you know three critical planks. The first one is that the players are not different, they're actually workers, they're performing a job and therefore uh, they're entitled to be considered as employees. Um, they can then um, develop um, a trade union and, 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 and act and organise uh, collectively. And where the sports governing bodies acts in an anti-competitive way, and we've seen this a lot with the use of antitrust law, for example, in the United States, but also in many other countries, be it England, throughout Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, we can hold those, those sports governing bodies to account. Um, and that, that, that struggle um, has actually brought about incredible benefits, not only for the players, but also the sports concern. Um, and so there's an incredible track record of success. And um, as the issues become more and more involved and complex, be it the economics of sport, be it issues such as health and safety, head injuries, personal development and well-being, um, there's an incredible knowledge base. And we've been fortunate to bring the very best people. Our president, of course, is Don Fear from now the National Hockey League Players Association, Demora Smith, Tony Clark, the head of FIFA Pro, the World Footballers Union, the head of the Strong Unions in Australia. They've all come together with really two objectives in mind. One is to exchange best practice so we learn from each other and we learn from these struggles that we've been through and what the common elements uh, have been. And the second is to advance um, the common good. And I think when we have a very clear focus on what that common good is, then the, the contest or the competition between the affiliates hasn't really emerged. And I've been very pleased with the unity of purpose that we've uh, been able to deliver. Yeah, and that's fantastic because it's 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 so vital because here in 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 North America, Brendan, I, I think, you know, the view is, you know, we're very familiar with, you know, the MLBPA and the NFLPA, NHLPA, and others, you know, that have a real strong voice on behalf of their players, um, but that type of strength among players associations is not universal. Right. I mean, in other parts of the world, you, you have varying degrees of, of um, effectiveness and cohesion and development of, of the players associations. And so having the North American uh, associations, FIFPRO and some of the other stronger unions around the world, as you said, sharing best practices, I believe just helps lift up the entire uh, body of player representation. And, and I believe that's important. It is, and um, it's a great challenge um, because, as we know, the the union movement itself more broadly, the labour movement itself more broadly, has been uh, on the receiving end of some very aggressive and strategic attacks to reduce its power over the last 30 
uh, or 40 years. And in many uh, of the jurisdictions in which our unions are operating, they're, they're operating in a very strong anti-union uh, involvement. We, we, we're throughout all the world, including Latin America, Africa and, and Asia. And the, um, the reality is that it's very difficult in, in, in those countries. The other thing too, of course, is that by its very nature, um, a players association is a unique, a unique beast uh, in one important respect. And that is that most unions charge a smaller membership fee to a large group of people in order to build solidarity. Our unions by their very nature and by why 85,000 might sound a lot, it's actually quite a small number in terms of union membership. So our unions need to achieve a strength, a sense of economic independence and economic strength with a small um, membership base. And so therefore, uh, one of our strongest pillars, and we have three pillars to what we're trying to achieve. The first is voice, how to build the power of our movement and how we can share knowledge so that our unions can de develop a sense of economic um, independence so that they can start to bargain with management quite strongly. And very strong commercial programs, the use of group licensing is very important there. Our second pillar is dignity, just to make sure that the fundamental rights of athletes are respected throughout global sport. And that's not been the case because sport has always wanted to impose its own sport specific standards over and above uh, or to the expense of human rights. And the third is we've decided, Jeff, to make a stand for humanity, for the entirety of the people who make sport possible. And that is because when FIFA awarded the World Cup to Qatar, um, the whole legitimacy of global sport was brought into question. The abuse of migrant workers um, um, on building sites, construction sites in Qatar, in delivering which what is meant to be um, a pinnacle sporting moment, namely the FIFA World Cup, uh, galvanised many organisations, including the United Nations, the International Labour Organisation, the broadcasters, the brands, uh, and of course the broader labour movement, to say, no, global sport's actually lost touch with what it's all about. It's meant to be a force for good, but unfortunately it's becoming a force or a cause of too much um, abuse. And on top of earlier corruption scandals, this really did become a turning point. And the human rights concerns actually go back further. You, know, you can really track them right back, probably to the late 60s in terms of these mega sporting events. So voice, dignity and humanity are the three pillars that we're pursuing. And we're very proud to stand as part of the broader labour movement and the broader human rights movement um, and make a contribution to the wellbeing of everyone who's involved in sport, not just the players. Yeah, and, it's, and again, it's such important work, um, you know, and those three pillars that you mentioned and, and the way you're pursuing them and being able to effectively, you know, get the players to be a part of these global discussions on the delivery of sport is so important. And particularly now where we find ourselves, because we do find ourselves in an unprecedented time. Uh, given the outbreak of the coronavirus. Obviously, we've seen a number of sport events and leagues postpone games uh, and events. 
um, suspend play, relocate games. Um, and there are a lot of issues here. And we're going to talk about the Olympics in a minute, but there are a lot of issues here in terms of sports and, and its response to the current outbreak. And how has the WPA and its affiliates been dealing with this current uh, crisis that we have around the world? Well, I think the, uh, the impact's been, been very different. Um, and that's because the approaches of, of, of government ha- have been uh, very different. But I think where the players were well, well organised, they really tried to achieve three things. The first one was to get access to the best and most up-to-date information, particularly in relation to public health and medical issues, so that they could start to make some informed decisions and try and give some good advice to the players at a time of great uncertainty. Um, The second was to make sure the players are actively involved in all of the major uh, decisions that need to be made around what are clearly going to be um, very, very significant impacts. Um, And the third was to make sure that we move away from dictate. You know, sport can be very hierarchical and decisions are imposed to get all of the relevant stakeholders around the table because it became very clear in a lot of countries that sport was going to shut down for a period um, and that the impact of that could be devastating unless it's well managed. Um, And I think some sports struggled to come to terms with that. Um, And then, um, of course, we've got a public health crisis that we need to help advance, not, not, not undermine, and we have to keep our eye on the long-term future of our industry as well. So there's been, um, uh, I think where, where we've been well organised, there's been a very constructive approach about dealing with the pandemic, um, mitigating the damage through the short-term nature of the shutdown, which of course it's still too early to know how long that'll be, and keeping an eye on the future to make sure that we can come out the other end in a sustainable way. Um, and that, 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 that's the way I think where it's been handled well, those three things have been in place. But it, it would certainly be true to say that that isn't the common uh, or the universal experience. And Brendan, you, you, you touch on so many important issues there, and I want to talk about a couple of them. Um, you know, you mentioned the importance of having access to the most up-to-date information um, that's available. And and that is so critical. And and one of the things that I believe we now know not to be true was the early reporting that we heard about who, what segments of the population may be most vulnerable to the virus. You know, we heard a lot about the elderly. We heard a lot about those who had uh, some, um, you know, issues with uh, with their immune system. They had a compromised immune system. But that if you were otherwise healthy, and especially if you were young and fit and strong, that this would not necessarily have, you know, much of an impact uh, on 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 that segment of the population. And we now know that that that's not necessarily true. Is several athletes have given some very harrowing accounts of how they are dealing with the virus. They've contracted the virus and 
they've been debilitated. And we've heard some very graphic descriptions from world-class athletes of how they've been affected. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of it, that we now know that the young and fit are now not immune from this virus? Yeah, I think we need to to understand that this this really, whilst it's the second incarnation, so to speak, of the SARS virus, it really only emerged late last year. And it wasn't really until the end of January that there was some transparency about what had occurred in China. Um, but what we knew about the virus was that um, at a macro level, it's highly contagious. Um, it, it, it can be transmitted uh, by people that are not um, showing symptoms. And, and it's a respiratory virus, so it attacks the lungs, which of course uh, are of critical importance to everybody, especially, um, especially athletes. Um, and so um, the, the key issue was the rate of, uh, to which this, this virus would become contagious and um, the capacity of public health systems to deal with that, 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 that level. Um, and we were very concerned, and it happened only uh, last week, that the International Olympic Committee, for example, um, gave... Uh, organised an, a, a conference call with some 250 of its athlete commission representatives. And the medical advice given to those uh, representatives was that athletes will suffer only mild flu-like symptoms, that, the, that they're young, they're fit, they're strong. Um, and that was really um, problematic in two respects, not just that athletes themselves may be vulnerable, but... More importantly, what this can do in terms of young people being given a message that they'll be okay uh, in circumstances where they can contribute to spreading the virus to people who are certainly a lot more vulnerable. And there have been more deaths with people with compromised uh, immune systems and also among the elderly. That is why we needed very much to get access to our own information. And we've been working very hard to build a relationship with the World Health Organization. And we're very pleased to see its Director General issue some very strong statements last Friday that, um, that made it clear that young people will become very sick, that young people may die. Tragically, we have seen um, a, a relatively high fatality rate, I think, by global standards in the United States, for example, for people between 20 and, and 44. But what this also meant is that some playing groups were put under enormous pressure to continue to play, even behind closed doors, in order to satisfy um, broadcast agreements. And they were effectively being asked to choose between the economic viability of their industry and their own health and well-being and the health and well-being of those they come into contact with. And we felt that that was really an untenable position for players to be put into. Yeah, there's no question about it. Um, you know, that, that tension of, you know, continuing to play and the pressure to continue to play and the, the public health issues, you know, because as you said, it's not just the athletes, but everyone that they athletes come in contact with. Um, but, you know, I'd like to make sure we spend some time talking about um, what for us is 
you know, the most recent development uh, on the global sports stage, and that is the decision by the IOC to postpone the Summer Olympics. Um, we're talking here on March 25th, and so the uh, announcement was a day or two ago. And um, I want to ask you about that generally, Brendan, but also as well, uh, the statement coming out of the IOC that the Olympics will be postponed to no later than the summer of 2021, I find a bit curious. But um, what can you tell us about the postponement of the Olympics, your view of it, and also what seems to be, you know, the rescheduling that could be before the summer of 2021? Well, first I would say, Jeff, that we welcome the decision to post, postpone the Games. It, we felt it was... Um, inevitable, unavoidable, um, but for a, for a long while there, it was looking unlikely. You know, the International Olympic Committee is is a unique beast. It's a very hierarchical organisation. Its president wields enormous power, and um, it for a long time, even as recently, I think it was last Tuesday or Wednesday, that the athletes met in the in the circumstances I just mentioned. Uh, it was very much a business as usual approach that. The games are still some four months away. This health crisis will have um, gone away by then. But when we spoke to athletes, and not just those that are members um, of our unions, but also in sports such as track and field, swimming and others, um, two key things really emerged. The first one was that they were worried about involving themselves in a mega sporting event of the scale of the Olympic Games and exacerbating the health crisis um, and, um, and just whether it was the right thing to do from a humanitarian point of view. Remember, the key issue here is the capacity of health systems to deal with the level of contagion. And at this stage, we have not yet seen high levels of uh, spread of the virus in, in Africa, in Southern Asia, uh, in Latin America. And so the idea of the Olympics being uh, a, a compounding factor was something the athletes made very, very clear to us. The second is they were being told to hey, go away, train, prepare as usual in circumstances where because of the national health uh, precautions, the gymnasiums, the swimming pools, the tracks, the facilities, all of them were simply closed. And so it was an impossible request for the athletes and they'll be coming very stressed about that. I have to perform, they'll be asked to perform at an international level in a few months time in circumstances where it was really impossible for them to prepare. Yeah. And I think, you know, as you said, it seemed like this was an inevitable decision that was made by the IOC, but yet it, it was pressure that was starting to be put on by you know, you had various uh, Olympic committees around the world that were putting on putting pressure on the IOC. Um, was the WPA part of that? Were you in communication with the IOC and and urging them to, uh, re, you know, to consider what ultimately was the decision to postpone these games? Absolutely, and I think what's really interesting about that is that this was unique. Uh, set of circumstances and hopefully it can bring about a change in the culture by which the IOC makes decisions because as I mentioned it likes to be hierarchical it likes to dictate outcomes and it's used to doing so but it had that 
uh, been left alone. A very, very bad decision would have been made. Now, by listening to the critical stakeholders who had to exercise some muscle, a better decision has been made. We can't revert to a hierarchical approach when it comes to determining when these games will be rescheduled because that's a very complex issue. But we certainly had individual athletes speak out. Uh, we had corresponded with the IOC about that. The human rights groups had also done that. But I think the situation when World Athletics, some 10 national Olympic committees, um, the US sports in track and field gymnastics and swimming said, we're not gonna send teams. Um, it really took that level of, um, of action to make the point um, very clear that, that this was an unsustainable proposition. Um, late last week, the IOC was trying to enlist its national Olympic committees to promote its message that the games are going ahead. It'll be a good thing for humanity. The problem will be solved by then. And I thought uh, my own uh, Olympic committee in Australia on Friday, it made a statement that it will be participating. It was promoting the IOC's message. They said somewhat ludicrous that they will send a coronavirus-free team to Tokyo, but they had actually advised by Monday the International Olympic Committee that they would not participate if the Games proceeded as scheduled. So um, that's an unprecedented uh, set of circumstances. I think hopefully the IOC needs to understand, certainly when it comes to the players and the athletes, you can have your own internal process of consultation, but you're not gonna get the hard information that's needed. That's very much uh, an information vehicle. The information's one way, it goes from the IOC to the athletes. And what was required here was for the IOC to listen to the athletes, not impart information. And that had to come through external communications. Is that something, Brendan, that you think is unique to where we find ourselves today in the midst of this pandemic? Um, or is it something that you believe in terms of athletes having more of a voice in these types of decisions by the IOC? Is that something that you think will continue as we go forward and, and come out of this? Well, I think it was it was going to be a very put, putting um, COVID nineteen to one side. The Tokyo Olympics were really coming at a very very important and challenging time. Um, we are seeing the individual groups. You know, the history of our player association movement see, shows that team sports have had success in organising, but with the exceptions of tennis and possibly golf individual sports have really struggled to develop a collective player voice. Um, and there's some interesting movements now. The Athletics Association representing track and field is, is doing some very impressive surveying of large numbers of track and field athletes. An organisation called Global Athlete is, is also trying to give athletes a, a voice at this level. And we're happy to work with these groups because we operate as, as a federation. We are naturally inclusive in the way we go about it. And leading into um, Tokyo, we were looking at issues, what's called Rule 40, which is essentially an IOC rule, which gives the IOC control over the economic rights of athletes around the games. Um, so they cannot commercialise their involvement. The issue of athlete pay, the issue of freedom of political expression on the part of athletes, uh, what's called IOC Rule 50, 
the prohibition on podium protests, for example, something which the athletes had indicated they were strongly opposed to. Some 50 years after the famous stand taken by Tommy Smith, John Carlos and Peter Norman, the AOC was still trying to prohibit that kind of behaviour. And we were also going to have very significant issues, and this will come up again, about heat and athlete safety, about having the games in late July and early August in a very oppressive climate that Tokyo will be at that time. These issues were all um, in the mix. Um, the IOC made a very important statement a week before, or before all of this erupted, that it's about to embark upon a new human rights strategy, that it's, it, it's committed to embedding human rights within the Olympic movement. It's, it's working with the former UN Human Rights uh, Commissioner, uh, Zaid Hassan, to develop that strategy. Um, and all of these issues were coming to a head and then COVID-19 emerged. I think COVID-19 has given a focal point and hopefully we can achieve some transformational change through it. Well, hopefully, I mean, that, that, you know, it does sound encouraging that the IOC is seeming to recognize the need to embed human rights in its operations, its decision-making and so on. So that that's encouraging and hopefully that is something that we will see um, continue. Now, now, Brendan, you mentioned also, you know, one of the concerns being the, the long-term future of sports, right, of, of the industry. And, you know, we're facing a lot of uncertainty right now, right? We are still very early in this, um, in this process. A lot of countries are beginning to um, be affected by the spread of the virus. Um, but then we've also seen in, let's say, in Japan and in China, for instance, where after some initial shutdowns, we've seen the resumption of, of gameplay. Um, that seems to me to be a very important decision, right? Of uh, At what point do we begin to return to the games? Is there anything that you've seen so far in Japan and China that perhaps we can, you know, that may serve as benchmarks or other indicators of when is, you know, we can see a return to play um, in, in, in the various sports? Um, I think it's really, it's really difficult to say, Jeff. Um, uh, Switzerland, for example, and much of Europe is, is locked down at least until the end of April, probably May. Um, and I think there's a very strong desire uh, on the part of the professional leagues to continue the suspended seasons um, well into the northern summer, maybe even into um, the following fall um, in order to complete their, their current seasons, deliver uh, their content to the broadcasters and make sure they can start to fill the stadia again. Uh, the UEFA Euros were to take place, that's the European International Football Championships this summer. They've been postponed precisely to allow that to occur. So I really think that this period of shutdown is an enormous challenge for those sports and those professional leagues that lack liquidity. And as you know, um, a lot of sports do, uh, despite record revenues, can, can lead a hand-to-mouth um, existence because of the internal competition. 
uh, that that exists. So um, that's going to be a difficult process, and we're seeing some pretty drastic economic measures uh, being agreed to by player associations to get through this period. In an ideal world, it would be good if we could deliver the same content and a similar economic model, say over a 15, 16, 17 month period instead of 12, that our leagues could quickly um, get back to normal. Uh, it all depends on our capacity to survive the impact of the shutdown and the quality of the collective decision-making that can be made. If people try to drastically cut costs now, I think that can exacerbate the bleeding, that can exacerbate the disharmony that exists within some industries, and I think that'll make the recovery much, much harder. Um, it's, it's a very uncertain time. Our job is to help provide some, some clarity. We've been encouraged that some governments do understand that sport is one of the more impacted industries uh, because it requires travel, the people can't work together, obviously crowds. And they also have the vision to know that when this when, when we're over the pandemic and society wants to come back together again, sport is going to be a very important driver of rebuilding the community spirit. And they're providing in their stimulus packages for sport to be an important part of that. I think that type of policy policy uh, framework gives us hope and it means that we're going to have to work very closely with the governments. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've seen that here in the United States uh, and as other countries have around the world, the ability of sport to help heal, you know, to help strengthen um, its citizens. And so obviously sports is a key part of, of our society. Um, but, you know, Brendan, another and I want to I don't want to lose this point as much as we're talking about athletes and we're talking about sports generally. There are so many men and women who are involved in the delivery of sports. Who are behind the scenes um, and here mm -hmm. in the United States, you know, we've seen some of the leagues and even players step forward and say that they want to support you know, and those who are working behind the scenes, uh, who work in the stadiums and the arenas during this time, because a lot of people are economically affected by this as well, obviously. Is that something you've seen in, in different parts of the world as well, where players associations, leagues, and even individual athletes are stepping up to support uh, those who are involved in the delivery of the games? I think we saw some great examples in Germany, for example, with the players at Bayern Munich and, and, and so on. But the reality is, Jeff, that for, for many players, um, you know, they don't earn money like they do in, in North America uh, or in the top five European leagues. Um, they're going to suffer like ordinary workers. Uh, they're worried, you know, this is a profession. The athletic career is one which is short term and, and, and precarious in the best of times. Um, and this, uh, I think, will, um, for many, um, you know, it, it's going to result in a long period of uncertainty. Players will be coming off contract in circumstances where the labour market will be uh, obviously uh, depressed. Uh, the opportunities to find new work will, will, will be compounded. And so a lot of our unions um, are working very hard on, on supporting their members in terms of uh, their mental health, their social wellbeing, 
their personal education and development. Uh, there will be a lot of transitions out of athletic careers because of this. Um, and that's certainly a major focus. But we're absolutely delighted that when um, athletes have the means um, to, to, to show a, a strong level of citizenship, that, that that's embraced. And we need that from all of sport. I think also what you're talking about there, workers in the stadia, workers in sports supply chains, you know, th th those jobs need to be better jobs and, and, and people should have access to sick leave. Uh, people should have access to the necessary sanita sanitation precautions so they don't get sick and they don't spread the virus. They need health care. There's certain things which um, need to occur and we're very much supporting the broader efforts of the labour movement. We're part of a global union which represents the services sector, Uni Global Union. And we're very much driving those messages to make sure that um, people are protected at this time. And of course, many service workers are in the front line, aren't they, of trying to keep society functioning at this difficult period. I appreciate that perspective, ben Brendan, because, um, you know, I, I look, I'm, I'm probably as guilty as many here in, in North America of, you know, sometimes viewing sports through our unique lens. And so, you know, I appreciate the comment about, you know, some athletes having to transition out of the game um, in other parts of the world and also not being in a position to perhaps support or do certain things for those who are involved in the delivery of sport because of their own situation. Um, but certainly we have seen in, in here in the States and around the world where when those associations and athletes can do something, they are. And I think that's a testament to sort of this awareness that athletes and their representatives have in supporting those who are vital to the delivery of the game. Um, so, Brendan, where, well, what's next on tap? I mean, what is this? You know, obviously, we're in the midst of a crisis that is ongoing. So it would seem to me that in, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of work ahead of you in the WPA. Um, and that would include, I would imagine, continued dialogue with the IOC, yes? Well, we hope so. <laughs> you know, the IOC uh, has already issued a statement today that, you know, the decision on postponement need, needs to be made urgently. Well, when I say postponement, I mean rescheduling. But that's such a complex matter. Um, with the Euros of football going into next year, we also have women's football. Uh, the basketball leagues will be continuing on. The whole scheduling of sport in 2021 risks being some form of bottleneck. And uh, the Olympics are important and, and we really want a successful Tokyo Olympiad. We've made it clear how much we respect the investment being made by the Japanese government and the Japanese people and the people of Tokyo into delivering the successful games. But we have to actually secure the viability of our industry. And, that, and that, that's even step two. Step one is actually to defeat the pandemic. And so we've been very pleased to see how many players, and this is a universal commitment, I think, Jeff, who have taken to social media to spread the message on um, the necessary precautions that everyone in society should be taking to help defeat the virus. Um, and I think what we would like to see is um, 
the IOC sit down with the unions, which is a big challenge for it, um, sit down with the, the, the bodies in professional sport and all the other sports and make sure that we can reschedule the Tokyo Olympics at a time when it's safe, at a time when the very best athletes can attend, at a time when the people of Japan can embrace the games. There's been a suggestion, for example, that they would take place behind closed doors, which is something we don't support, and also ensure that they can take place in a way which is universal so that the entire international community can attend without contributing to, to COVID-19. There is a concern that this virus will hit in two or three waves. And so we have to be very careful. There's a lot that needs to be done. And I think that what we're hoping is there'll be a change in culture at the highest levels of global sports so that these decisions can be worked through methodically. Um, and it might take more than, more than one year. And it certainly might extend beyond the northern summer in 2021 before these issues can be resolved. Yeah. And Brendan, I will say this and that, you know, the work that you're doing and the work that the WPA is doing to attempt to affect that change in culture is important. And obviously, um, you know, wish you all the best with that and look forward to continuing to stay in touch with you and working with you as, as we can to be a help to that. But, um, Brendan, I, I do appreciate the time. I know you have a lot going on. And so uh, I just want to thank you for coming on today and sharing the perspective of what's going on around the world um, and the work of the WPA in looking to advance the cause of athletes and of those involved in the delivery of the games that we love so much. So I appreciate you taking the time to do that for us today. Oh, thank you for your interest, Jeff, and it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Brendan.